thank all of you for coming today. I asked my mom and sister and dad to come along because I wasn't sure there'd be anybody else in the audience. <laughs> so it's fabulous to see all of you. Special thanks to Elizabeth and Howie from um, Corporate Partnerships for all their work and planning this, for Dean Beardsley for inviting me to come, for Coco Owens for suggesting it. Now, Coco did work with us last summer, and she lived in a cottage on our farm, and she used to go running with us. We have four kids. Um, we were playing football one day, and everybody's screaming, no, Coco, no, and she, she froze, but it was the dog, and my eight-year-old son said, not Coco the human. So she is known in Billericay as Coco the human. Anyway, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful to see you, so thank you very much. Now, Dean Beardsley and Coco suggested I talk about my journey, and I suggested that I needed that to be narrowed down a bit, because when I've been back at Darden, Greg Fairchild did a case on the acquisition of ground control. That's very narrow. It was really easy for me to focus. A journey in, is a lot, especially if you wear a multiple set of hats. So, um, mother. If I think of myself now, I think first and foremost of my children and every single thing I do. This is teaching my son to swim. If I think of highlights of my whole life, this was it. We weren't sure this kid was ever going to talk, <laughs> let alone walk and swim. He was a slow developer, and this was his first swim. Um, making it fun. I do think whatever you're doing in life, trying to make it fun. So if you're, if you're studying Egyptian history, jump right in. This is my son, Max. This is one, some school thing where they ask parents to volunteer. I was the only one that dressed up. The kids were supposed to dress up. <laughs> and it was his first year at this school, and we rocked in just like this. And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> now, in the front is my daughter, Sophie, and she's probably about 10. And she used to be physically sick at sports day. Um, she was so nervous about coming last, which I can completely relate to that, that she would be sick and not be able to participate. So my husband, who is in the trailing in the behind on the right in what looks like girls' knickers and a too small <laughs> shirt, Simon started getting the whole family running together. And then he started doing things like signing us up for triathlons. Now, the three people that know me best will know this is really not for me. Anything that's a triathlon, swimming in the Thames, any of that. But this was the second triathlon we did, and the kids ran the whole 5K with me. And that was the farthest she'd ever run, and she overtook me at the end, and they're cheering me forward. But that leadership by example, not only with the kids, but a lot in the business. I just threw this in for fun. Taylor Swift concert. Be cool, right? Your kids, when you guys have kids, or if you're not already parents, your kids want you to be like kind of cool. I embarrass my children every day. This was maybe a highlight for me and them because I got Taylor Swift tickets and off we went to the O2. Now, there's only one picture of me in this whole series as a wife. I don't like the cold. I don't really like the mud. I don't like rain. I don't like swimming in open water. My husband signed us up, the whole family, for this mud run, Tough Mudder. Um, this will be the only time you ever see a picture like this. But Part of my role also is a wife, and that's supporting the person that you love most and doing things that are important to them. So, you know, four days trekking to Machu Picchu, there's a long list, but <laughs> that's one of them. When I was at um, Ground Control about 10 years ago, we just bought the business, and the women in the office one day said to me, do you know if you Google search your name, what comes up? And I'm thinking of all the things that should come up, and they said, dog breeder. That was the number one Google search for Kim Morsh was a dog breeder. And we, my mom can attest to this. We did three rounds, 17 puppies in total. That's Coco the dog versus Coco the human. And uh, I'd like to think that I have now progressed past that to have some other things that I could be known for. So in terms of the journey of my life, there is a lot. This is a lot of what is important to me now, but it started back in Blacksburg, Virginia. So I have my mom and dad and sister. They've jetted up from southwestern Virginia today to join us. And from a very early age, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. So I was kind of good at science and math. And I don't know what your parents were like, but they would say, oh, maybe, you know, like it was a really noble career to be a doctor. But more than being a doctor, I just wanted to help people. Now, this is where people in your life help guide your path. Because I came to UVA, and my careers advisor could possibly sense I was not cut out for the practicalities of saving lives. And he suggested, why don't you get a volunteer job in emergency room, right? Just, just dive in. 
So the second time I woke up on a gurney with an ice pack on my head and a blood pressure cuff on my arm, they, they fired me when I came to. They're like, this is not, you're taking up so much, but this is not going to happen. <laughs> I went back to my advisor and said, um, I've been fired. Could you could we do another stent someplace? And it was cardiac care. Well, that's gruesome if you've ever seen open heart surgery. So I was a candy striper, and they moved me in from there. I was pushing trolleys of blood vials to the blood bank under the hospital. Uh, I lost that job. <laughs> Children's Rehab Center. And finally, you know, even I concluded I'm not cut out to be a doctor. This is never going to work out for me. And about that time at Virginia, I was taking a couple foreign affairs classes, and I just loved it. So things that maybe I was good at, I didn't enjoy them. And I'm taking these foreign affairs classes in history, and it was just lights going on all over the place. So I decided then and there, this is what I do. I want to, I want to travel and see the world. So there's a number of things you can do to make money. Most of my classmates at this time were getting jobs um, in banks and offices. And I was like, God, I can't imagine being in those constraints. And I loved waiting tables, but that's not a lot of great CV building. So I saw a sign up one day over at UVA Student Union that said, work out west, be your own boss, great adventure. And I show up at this session, and about 20 minutes into it, I realized this is the cult pyramid sailing um, scheme that my dad had for at least a year or two said, oh, Jill Bowling made a lot of money selling books door to door. You should do it. And I'm like, I'm never going to do that. Well, there I was, and that's what I did for two summers. I sold books literally door to door, first in Colorado, then in California. Now, if I think of all the original stuff I did early years, career-wise, educational-wise, probably the most influential on my success has been that two summers selling books. It was all about setting goals. So they did a week of training, and then they said, here are your daily goals. Break them down into hours. The more you work, the better you're going to do. So if you focus on the activity of something, which is knocking on a door, cold calling, law of averages, you're going to get a certain number of sales. So <laughs> I literally went door to door to door selling books, or trying to sell books. And if I wasn't doing that, I walked out of my sales area to a pay phone, and I called my dad collect and cried. Now, in the digital age, I don't know if you guys have pay phones, or you know what a pay phone is. It's like a huge, yeah? A huge mobile phone submitted into the ground. And the only functionality is a call, but you have to have the money, which I didn't have. So I would reverse charges and call my dad. And uh, he would say things like, laugh and the world laughs with you, cry and you cry alone. That was one of my favorites. <laughs> and so I would get back out there and, and sell some more. And it was a very, very tough tough job. Books, selling books, imagine your five biggest test, um, textbooks in accounting, finance, marketing, whatever, in a big blue canvas sack thrown over your shoulder for 12 or 14 hours a day. It was tough. It was tough. And I didn't like it. I cried a lot. And what was amazing about this, I was good at it. So we get our sales sex. We get together on the weekends and talk about how everybody's doing. I was doing sort of the best of my group in, in uh, Colorado. It was real it was a real lift, and then they convinced me to do it a second summer. I learned so much about setting goals and having plans. Like, if this is what you need to achieve, you just chunk it out. The other thing I learned that has probably served me better than anything else is the ability to engage with people. So you have a split second when you meet somebody, whether you're interviewing for a job or it's somebody at the bar you want to talk to. It's a split second to connect with them. Find some way to establish rapport and, and advance the relationship. I had so many chances, sometimes 40 chances a day to get it right. It was Groundhog Day. I'd get it wrong, wrong, wrong. Okay, right. Remember what that word like. And go backwards. And it's, these are skills I use to this day, 30 years later. Now, selling books door to door, went traveling around the world. And when I went from... Um, Western Europe, through Central Eastern Europe, and then down to Turkey, I had this, this goal or this idea. Not only did I want to travel through the world, I wanted to do something that made a difference. I wanted to work in the Foreign Service to make a difference in other people's lives. This is a deeply personal goal, like being a doctor. It wasn't 
be a career in something was, this is what I want to do. And so I moved back to Washington and I applied for the Foreign Service. And they had a hiring freeze on, like no, no jobs at all. The only way you could get in is through a back door as a clerk typist. So my first professional job out of, with a UVA degree and a year more or less of sales and sales management experience was as a clerk typist. My annual salary was a quarter of what I'd been making selling books. And I still took the job. Now, those early days were really um, formative. The, the thing that I learned straight away is who you work with makes a huge difference. I had three bosses. My, my first boss, Carolyn, she looked at me and she said, I do all my own typing. Let's get you doing something that's more appropriate for your, for your background. And she just gave me a portion of her job. She was the original Sheryl Sandberg. She said, if I send you to a meeting and you don't sit at the table and say something intelligent, you're going to be typing till you leave here. And I took her at face value. And it was, it was tough to have that confidence. I mean, I was a clerk typist, and I was showing up at meetings at a grade way beyond what I was prepared for or what I was being paid for. And I was scared of her, so I just did it. And the other two guys I worked with, likewise, they pushed me forward for publishing. I remember when I told my parents, I've just published an article on guinea worm eradication. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. It's not stuff mainstream I thought about. I was so thrilled traveling to Honduras for the first time. They really pushed me forward. I still couldn't get into the Foreign Service. And I thought, listen, i got to find out another way. I can't live on $17,000 a year in Washington. So um, I applied to go back to graduate school, and I chose DART, and it was my number one choice. And I'm waiting to get in when, you know, fate and irony, I get sworn into the Foreign Service the same day I got my acceptance to DART. So now we're at an interesting juncture, and I say to the State Department, can you pay for me <laughs> to go back for two years, and then I'll be even more valuable? And they said, no, but we'll hold your spot. So that's what I did. I was down here at Darden for two years, and I had my head down. I think you guys are so lucky to have this, um, the, these pre-courses in finance and accounting. I had no business background in those courses, and I felt really dumb every day. I felt so out of my depth, and it was really intimidating. I think in terms of women as population in the, in the classroom, my, my section of 60, there were probably 20% of us. And they all seemed to have banking backgrounds or finance. And it was, you know, it, was, uh, it was a tough experience for sure. And so it was head down, and all I needed to do was get the degree, which I thought of as a passport of legitimacy, right? And then I was going to go get a job in the Foreign Service. So during this time, I'd heard, I, was, I spent a summer in Costa Rica working with USAID, and I heard about this guy who was the best Foreign Service officer in USAID. He'd been trained at Harvard as a lawyer. Before that, he'd been a Jesuit priest. He understood so much how to build effective relationships with our counterparts, how to really drive positive change. And more importantly than anything, he was a wonderful human being. So I thought, I'm going to work for him. Where is he? He was in Bolivia. This picture Bolivia. I'd never been any place quite like Bolivia before. And I called him, because there were no real emails at the time, and said, can I come work for you? And he said, no. I said, okay, I'm going to be in the neighborhood because <laughs> I was doing a project with Bacardi Rum in Argentina and Chile over Christmas. I said, listen, I'm going to be in the neighborhood. I'd love to pop in and see you. He said, this is not the neighborhood. It's a five- or seven-hour flight. I can't remember. And I said, no, that's okay. I'm just going to pop up. <laughs> just say hi. So he told me not to come, and I went anyway. Now, he's got to be flattered at this point, right? or maybe annoyed, but he saw me, and then he and his wife took me out for dinner, and they, he said, look, we just don't have the FT, full-time equivalent, to bring another person on and um, whatever. And I was like, okay, just as well, because I, f I stepped out of the flight. It's 12,000 feet. La Paz, Bolivia is the highest capital in the world. And at 12,000 feet, there's very little oxygen. Okay? You, can't br you just can't catch your breath. You get splitting headaches. It was summertime in the rest of South America, and there was snow everywhere. And so I got back on the plane. I'm like, oh, I'm glad he can't create a job there for me because I don't know if I could hack it. And he called me a few months later and said he had created a job. And so off I went upon graduation. Now, this was fun. I was in USAID. I was living this dream of what I'd wanted to be as a person. And I spent most of my time out of the office working in projects. Now, there's something, who knows microfinance? Have you guys had any cases on this or heard of it? Kiva and Grameen Bank? 
It's, it's providing loans for unbankable small business. And if I, if I think about my philosophy on development, it's about um, providing access to people that don't have access. And that's a very sustainable way to do it. Lend out some money, they pay it back. It just keeps going in and out, in and out. And it can really help businesses develop. So majority of the customers were women. There were five microcredit banks in Bolivia. I loved it. I loved it so much I extended for a third year there. And then I went back to Washington. I was doing private equity, U.S. government finance, private equity, but privately, um, privately managed in Central Europe and Central Asia. And uh, I realized immediately where Bolivia had been a great match for me, Washington wasn't. Being in a bureaucracy was stifling. It was awful. And I got headhunted to work for a German company that did microcredit banks around the globe to launch their Washington operations. Now, if I can think of any moment in time where I thought, how can everything converge to the dream job, that was it. It was very entrepreneurial. There was no structure around me. They bankrolled this startup. They were so well-respected, wonderful people that I worked with out of Germany. And I did everything, find the premises, staff it, all the marketing collateral, the branding, um, found projects, found donors, put people on long-term projects for IPC. And it was just amazing. And I'm thinking, how can life get any better? And I was running a project in Jamaica when I met my now husband. And we were both there working for about a year in the middle of financial sector crisis. So this is as, probably as good as I could imagine life being. And life threw a really unexpected but wonderful curveball in the form of a baby. So pregnant in Jamaica. This is Jamaica. This is Montego Bay. This is where I lived and worked for a year, right? Every day I'd turn on the news, what's the weather going to be? Even in hurricane season, sunny and hot, right? I was born for a place like this, sunny and hot every single day. And so um, we talked about what, you know, what's the next best plan of action. I didn't want to keep working for IPC. I had, I had worked with them in Haiti and in Bosnia and Jamaica. I mean, there were six murders a day at the time. It was a tough place, and we definitely didn't want to have our daughter there. So one night over dinner, we had this idea, let's start a new business, right? Be careful what you cook for dinner. <laughs> we decided to both quit our jobs. I rented out my house in Georgetown. I sold everything or pawned it off on my sister and my parents and uh, caught a flight. And at seven months pregnant, we went to England, which is exactly like Jamaica, except for torrential rain. <laughs> This was the weather forecast every day except two in 1999. It was the wettest year on record of record keeping since 1776. And I found that really telling because that's when the colony said, we don't want to be part of this. <laughs> right? It didn't stop raining. The motorway that went all the way around London was flooded and shut. And that's where we set up shop for the business. Now, somehow we convinced a third partner, because we were. I look at this now and I think, that sounds so crazy. We got a friend, Eric, who had also been working at McKinsey with Simon, to also chuck in his job. And he flew to England, and we launched a business, housemart.com. It was sort of like truly. Have you guys, anybody own a house? Show of hands. It's like, it's like an internet site, all the properties that you could search for in one place. Truly, it used to be home store. There was nothing like this in the UK. They didn't even have a multiple listing service at the time. So we're like, Eureka, let's do that. It was such a good idea because there was a big, big demand for it. We developed some great technology. Sophie was a couple months old, and I was out selling. We were, we were selling a big estate agency chains, really getting traction. And within three months, a bunch of competitors launched with 40 million pounds of advertising budget. We had 50,000 pounds of angel investment. Okay, time to rethink. Again, there's a theme here, isn't there? Time to rethink. So not, oh, here's the original team. Uh, we knew we weren't going to be able to survive long. And I remember one day we're, we all have our heads down and Eric comes in. Sophie was in the, in the office with us every day because we didn't have money for a nanny. She would be in the, and she was so happy and content. And Eric came into work one day in his pajamas. <laughs> and I looked over at him and I said, oh my God, are you in your pajamas? And he said, yeah, what? I said, we're running a business here. You know, we're under a lot of pressure. You need to be dressed. And he said, 
your baby comes to work with you. And I said, she's dressed. She's not in her pajamas. <laughs> Tighten up. <laughs> we had this uh, immediate reaction. Let's, let's move with the consolidation. Let's gobble up some small players. Let's get some, some mass, and then we'll sell. Right? Let's, let's move with all the money. And we started doing that, and there was so much private equity. This was the true dot-com boom. Did you guys study that? Oh, my goodness. There was so much money and so many crazy business ideas, including ours. And two consolidations later, and then we exited. And what we had, we had our egos intact. So nobody's going to retire off this money, but we absolutely made more than if we'd been paid high salaries. And, you know, it was such a great learning experience. More importantly for me and Simon, and Simon's on the left, Simon and I realized we loved working together and that we made a really unbeatable team, okay? Um, co tremendously complementary skills. I call myself front of house, and I'll call him back of house. So anything that deals with people, sales, marketing, anything that's the front, I love that stuff. He's super clever on um, financial structuring, operations, system. My, my parents will tell you, you can look at our car when we're leaving Virginia, six great big suitcases and a normal size car, and somehow he gets them all to work. He gets them all in the car, hanging over the kids' heads. He can just look at stuff and figure out a, the best, most efficient way to do it. So we took the money that we had. Simon had been applying to do an MBA and was trying to decide between Harvard and Stanford, not two bad choices, when Sophie got a letter saying she'd been accepted to Harvard Business School Daycare Center. Decision made, right? No need to go to sunny California. And the MBA program at that time, they had uh, like an accelerated one that started in January. We hit Boston in January. It was so cold, but she had a place at this nursery school, and that's why we took the, we took the opportunity to move there. I took a job at Harvard Business School Interactive, which was another startup. Now, this is the third startup I've been involved in. They had just signed a joint venture with Stanford, ironically enough, and their executive education was trying to figure out if you're training the top 50 leaders of a, of a corporation like Pfizer or Merck on organizational renewal or leadership, how do you get the next 5,000 or 50,000 managers to be on the same hymn sheet? And you have to leverage technology. There's no other way to, there's no cost effective way to do it. So they were working very closely together on collaborative technology to accelerate and expand learning in their exec ed program. And so, I, I worked for them. It, was, it is another example. I went to see the guy that was running it, and he's like, we don't have a job for you. I go, that's okay. I'd really love to work here. You're kind of like on the way home from dropping my daughter to take care. <laughs> I'm only here for, for 18 months. It's a really exciting proposition. I'd, I'd like to give it to them. So they, they hired me, and it was such a good job. I worked with really fantastic people. Now, we were there, and we did a lot of outdoor stuff, skiing and whitewater rafting. And we were on a whitewater rafting trip with a friend of ours, and he said, when I graduate from Harvard, I'm going to raise a search fund and buy a business. Boom. That's all it took. We looked at each other, and that split second, both of us knew, no more startups, let's buy a business. Well, at least that's what I was thinking. Simon's look meant, let's have three more kids. So. <laughs> We returned to London, where he owed McKinsey two years. They had so generously put him through business school. I started the search for a business to buy. Now, I understand from Alex, who I had a wonderful coffee with yesterday, that there is so much information now on search funds and acquisitions. You guys, who else is involved and interested in acquiring a business besides Alex? Let me know if I can help, but it sounds like everything's out there, like a buffet of information and, and cases. The only person we'd ever heard of was Pete. Pete gave us the stuff he was using. I did Global Search Replace and made it uh, relevant for England, for the two of us. The scope was so wide. It was buy a business with assets to leverage, because we didn't have very much money, anywhere in England. <laughs> Doesn't matter the sector because we didn't have any real sector experience to speak of that was you know, unique. Um, we didn't want to have technological risks. So we were worried about the ability for technology to overcome the business. And we didn't want it to be outsourced. There was a huge movement for outsourcing and offshoring to India. So that was the scope. Now, I'm going, like everything, you just talk to people. I'm going to business brokers, accountants, um, private equity guys. I'm telling my dry cleaner 
my hairdresser, waiters in the restaurant, every friend I had made, all the old friends I had, telling everybody about it. And it was tough because they'd say, oh, where's your business partner? I'm like, oh, we had to work today. <laughs> When's the baby due? Because by this point, I'm pregnant with our second baby, Max. And uh, there was one guy who never asked me when's the baby due. And it was through a Darden alumna named um, Jeff Bocan, who's working with Berengia Private Equity. He'd reached out to me when we had this startup and we'd stayed in touch. He and his wife were over for dinner and he said, I found the perfect business for you. It's a small landscaping business. They do Tesco, which is a big supermarket chain, and the Tower of London. And I was like, ooh, I understand that business. That sounds good. So. Off we went, and uh, it's interesting because around this exact time, we're doing, looking at this deal, I had Max, our second baby. Now, I thought I was a successful mother. Sophie had never been hurt. She was three and a half. I thought I really understood mothering. Nothing could prepare me for the challenges of, it could be a boy, it could be specifically Max. <laughs> there was no way to childproof our house, right? This is Nutella. It's the stickiest stuff in the world. It's like chocolate peanut butter. He somehow broke in, and there were jars of this stuff, because our German nanny at the time just had stashes of it all over the <laughs> and, and this was before a dinner party we were having. I walked into the kitchen, and I'm like, yeah, and I scooped him up. I'm already dressed for dinner, and I'm carrying up the steps, and gloopy chocolate is just falling off of him, and Sophie's licking it off the carpet as we go up the stairs. The other thing about Max, troublemaker, is he was so accident prone. And uh, again, never had Sophie hurt even a second. This kid, that's um, falling off the sofa. We didn't put him in, in harm's way. He was in emergency room three times in a row for falling off the sofa, falling down two stairs, like from like one stair, two stair, boom, and sitting at breakfast one morning and falling off his chair completely passed out with concussion and a cracked tit. I mean, how do you childproof for that? Now, even to this day, I know for a fact I'm on um, a child endangerment watch list because it's not funny. I mean, I laugh about it. It's really not funny because I took him to the emergency room a couple years ago. He had a rugby, he had cleats, like rugby boot indentations that had broken the skin, and I was worried about infection, so I took him to the hospital. He's covered in mud. He's in his rugby kit. And he's got the rugby boots on. It's so clear what this is. And they separated us and interviewed us separately because that had triggered the national watch list. <laughs> anyway, this is Max, early days. We move out to Billericay. Now, when I was looking at this deal and I said to Simon, it's a lands, uh, grounds maintenance business. It's in Billericay. Where is Billericay? Has anybody ever been to Billericay besides Coco? Why? I, I lived in and you went to Billericay? Yeah, I had friends from other. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so my husband's British. I said, where's Billericay? He said, I've never heard of it. And I said, it's in some place called Essex. And he said, I've never been to Essex. Like it was the moon. It was 20 miles from where we were sitting in London at the time. So we looked at this deal, and the deal was pretty straightforward. It was just bigger than what we had money for. So. Um, grounds maintenance, everybody understood it. They had recurring revenue streams, which were fantastic. They had three big customers that produced most of the revenue and the majority of the, the profits, and uh, nothing to leverage. So I'm like, I don't know how we're going to raise money for this. And Simon said, oh, it's like packing the car with all the secrets. Just leave it to me. And he put together this absolutely cracking deal. I still marvel that we were able to do this. No wonder the banks went into crisis. Bank of Scotland, it was five times multiple. They had um, two million pounds of EBITDA. We needed a little over 10 million to close the deal. We had 440,000 pounds. Genius is right here. He structured it so the former owner would take 25% of the shares and give us four million pound vendor's note. We borrowed five and a half million pounds from Bank of Scotland. The four guys that were running the business with the former owner, the existing management team, we convinced them to remortgage their homes and invest alongside of us. Right now, their, 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 their investments were, were more than their annual salary. I mean, this was a lot of money for everybody. And we were still short. We we're still short 110,000 pounds. And we passed the hat. 
And that sounds like an expression, but it literally was. We passed the hat to all of our friends and family, including my mom and dad, and said, can you guys come in for 10000 Can everybody chip in and let us close this deal? And miraculously, we, we raised the money and we closed the deal. Now, here's a tip besides have goals and make plans. Trust lowers transaction costs. The reason we were able to do this on a shoestring is because we invested exclusively in building relationships with the existing management team and the owner. And as a result, we avoided all the expensive mezzanine debt. We completely avoided private equity, which I'd advise all of you to do if you can. Nothing against private equity, but it really erodes your value, and it's such an expensive way to buy a business. Um, and we got everybody aligned in the same direction, right? So sounds good. Agree? You guys, who's read the case? You guys optimistic? This is what ground control does. There's so much irony here because, first of all, my, my parents have a big uh, five-acre um, plot of land, and there's a little over an acre just filled with grass. And I used to say, who would plant grass? Why would you plant something you got to cut every week? It's so mind-numbingly boring. Well, this is where we've made a lot of money, cutting grass. They cut grass. They trim shrubs. They spray for weeds. It's really straightforward. All you guys can understand this. Everybody can understand this. Our customers could understand it. It was such a straightforward business to buy. So second irony is not only that this is now what I'm dedicating my life to, it's that I leave. I want to see the world. Don't forget this. I, I was so turned on by the world. I leave the bright lights of London, which is the coolest city on the planet, and I move to a town that is one quarter the size of my hometown. Then my dad used to say, why don't you come back and take over the business? I said, who would I be friends with? There's nobody there. It's too small. <laughs> Here I was in Billericay. So everything's aligned. The deal's fantastic. What could go wrong? Well, everything went wrong. Every, literally, I don't know. I mean, virtually everything went wrong. The first thing that went wrong, 2004, we closed on the deal. Within two months, our biggest customer asked us for a 400,000-pound rebate check. That means take out your pen and checkbook and write a check to your customer for almost a half a million pounds, straight off our profits. And we immediately breached our covenants with Bank of Scotland. It was terrifying. And we said, what if we don't give it to them? And we just were so worried we would end up losing the whole contract. So we did it. About a year later, cash is so tight, it's crazy. And we had to remortgage our home again to meet Christmas payroll. I, I don't want to over-dramatize this. It was terrifying. These were terrifying times. And things just weren't adding up in the business either. Like the cash flow that should have been coming in that we didn't have the systems of control in. And we realized we were a quarter million pounds short on what our projected bank balance should be. We're just, there's a hole in the account. And we started digging around, and we realized one of the directors who'd mortgaged his home to invest with us, he'd worked for the former owner for 15 years. He was a close personal friend of everybody else. He'd been defrauding the business. So we, we thought that for maybe one day on the 23rd, but we knew it for sure on the 24th of December. So we're, sh we're shutting on Christmas Eve, and we suspend this guy for gross misconduct pending an investigation, and the business shut. And we spend the whole Christmas break getting witness statements and evidence from subcontractors and colleagues against him. So this really is a rock bottom, right? This is a year and a half into owning the business. And Christmas trading ends, and we resume. I'm um, Christmas shutdown ends. We resume trading the 3rd of January. And we're driving up from Billericay, the two of us, to the high-risk maternity unit at Cambridge Hospital because I was nine months pregnant with Savannah. <laughs> and we're just, I mean, honestly, I can't explain. Deer in the headlight, we're just paralyzed. And the phone rings, and it's our biggest customer saying he's had a call from this guy. And the guy just totally stirred it up with him, told him all sorts of stuff. And then 10 minutes later, our competitor calls, and he was such a gentleman, and he said, this guy's been on the phone with us offering to sell all your prices. Then Savannah was born. Now, I think... God gives you what you need. She came out. There's never been a more content baby in the world. She was so happy and easy, and she must have sensed what kind of terrible state affairs we were in. I, my parents were there. They would, and they came to help me with the baby. Simon would come home from work, and we would talk about this case. Do you remember this? We'd talk about how could this happen and what could we do, and the police didn't want to know, and it's just 
such a saga, but we, you know, you carry on. And the big thing that we learned from this is put better systems of control in, right? There's so much of the whole deal was structured around trust, but we just needed to tighten up a bit on things. Um, we also thought we need, to, we need to sell more and we need to grow faster, and so we started doing some acquisitions. Um, we expanded our landscape, landscape construction and design work. This is the original team. I cut out the guy that is the bad guy, but these, <laughs> this is the, that's his shoulder. I literally cut him out of the picture to show you guys. This is right after I had Savannah. I can't even believe any of us are smiling. But <laughs> this was the original team. It's a BIMBO, buy-in management buyout. We did a lot of organic growth. We bought a fencing division. And we moved into winter gridding. Now, that's what it's called in England. I don't know what it's called here. Snow clearance and flinging salt on tarmac. <laughs> we were working for all the big supermarkets. Our, our, our um, anchor customer was Tesco. It was a national contract with them. We bought a little company up in Scotland so we could really understand how gridding worked because that's where it was always cold. And we rolled it out. And soon we were, we were gridding for every supermarket in the country, all the big supermarket chains, along with emergency services and doctor's offices. Really great. We then bought another business cutting vegetation around railway lines and under power lines. We moved into public sector, social housing, big parks and open spaces. Now, I'm not a big fan of acquisitions. Buy a business and then grow it. We did acquisitions. They were small or they were very cheap. Now, my dad has this joke that my mom came home with an escalator because it was marked down. And I always laughed at that. My husband is that same person. He loves a deal. And I've said, oh, no, please, let's not buy it. And he's like, oh, God, it's such a great deal. We've acquired a bunch of businesses. They have been small or super-duper cheap, but they've all been rolled into ground control, and they've really strengthened the business. There's something around data around ten, 8 out of 10 acquisitions destroy value. Have you guys heard this? 8 out of 10 acquisitions destroy shareholder value. That's so true. I believe it. And I've watched our competitors acquire. It's all gone so terribly wrong. We were, we were really lucky. I will say some of these acquisitions destroyed happiness. So if you've built a business and it's a business you really love and care about, other people come in and they may not share your culture. They may not share your values. They may not work in the same ways. And instead of thinking of the enemy outside your gates, they're inside with you. So it's tough. We just two years ago bought a roofing business. Right? This gets sexier and sexier. It's all, great. it's all great business, though. It's all things our customers need. There's not tremendous professionalism around these services. They're pretty cash generative, and it's allowed us to grow the business and use the original business as a platform. So here, that's my journey. We're at the end of it, right? Here are some lessons I've learned. And some of them I learned really early on, and some I'm just concluding. But the first thing is surround yourself with the very best people. I recruited my first sales team at 21. I recruited people that were like me, that I liked, and I thought were fun. Half of them were great at sales, and they loved that job. And the other half hated sales. They weren't that good at it, and it was a terrible summer. I didn't think about the skills they need. I didn't sell it right. So... Think about people in everything that you do. The five people you spend the most time with are the ones that influence you. So choose, you know, choose carefully. Really choose carefully. How many married people in this room? Wow. You two are married? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Who you marry... This is free advice. Who you marry is going gonna, is gonna to create most of your happiness and a disproportionate amount of your misery. <laughs> disproportionate amount of your misery. All right? That is so important. Remember that. Even if it doesn't work out and you get divorced, there you have the intractable bonds of children. And those kids, if you have kids, they're going to inherit half of each of your genes. So the things you start over time to drives you crazy how somebody's, your kids are going to have those same genes. <laughs> they're going to learn, as my mom's pointing out to me, both of your bad behaviors, what they watch you do, they're going to, it's just replica, monkey see, monkey do. So just be careful, okay? <laughs> Think about it. It's the most, single most, I don't know if the married people agree with me. And nobody tells you how hard it is. 
Nobody, you're growing up, no, it's like married happily ever after. That's so not true. It is hard. <laughs> it's hard, hard work, and it's worth it. You've got you to gotta keep watering it. It's so easy to forget. My husband said to me, I come last. I come last after everything. I said, that's not true, honey. He said, yeah, it is. I wanted to say, well, at least you're on the list. But I said, no, <laughs> that's, that is not true. You don't come last. And he said, yeah. I come after everybody. I said, well, you don't come after Coco, the dog. <laughs> um, and he pointed out that I actually probably spend more time caring for the dog than I do for him. It's really tricky. You've got to get the balance right. People ask me how I find the balance of owning and running a business and four kids and all the crazy, and there is no balance, okay? There is not balance. And I say I'll sleep when I'm super old because something gives. And I think the reason our marriage and our business and our kids have all stayed kind of on track is because we own a business together. Because if we worked as hard as we did for other people, we both resent it. I would think, why are we still on our laptops at midnight every night after we get the kids to bed? Right? I don't know how it would work in the same way. So I'm just being honest about this. The other thing I would say, really pay attention to culture. Okay, so when I, I met great people yesterday from the Women in Business Club and from the Entrepreneur and Venture Capital Club and then some guys over at ILAB, I'd say, why'd you choose Darden? It was a real, a lot of stuff around culture. You know, what does it feel like here? What class size? You know, where, it wasn't uh, statistics or numbers. It was how things feel. Think about that. Make sure that you are really paying attention to culture. So if you're joining a business, do the culture, does the culture of that business line up with your values? If you're an entrepreneur, focus the first day creating the right culture, right? Create a culture that's in line with your values. I got it right at Ground Control. We spent so much time, effort, and money reinforcing a culture there on people at the center of everything we do, outstanding customer service, teamwork, innovation. We talk about it in recruiting. We talk about it semi-annual bonuses. We talk about it in appraisals. It is so much of what we do, fun at parties and inclusivity. And one day I realized that I've totally missed a trick with my own kids. Now, this is my little boy, Leo, who was born in 2008. And he said he's sweet. He's so sweet. And he said, uh, I'm worried that I'm not as nice as I used to be. And I lay down with my kids every night and read to them, one at a time, four kids. It's a long process. <laughs> And then if I don't fall asleep, because they will elbow me, if I'm still awake, I'll say, let's say prayers, or let's talk about what's important in your day. And, da -da. and he was confiding in me. He was really worried about it. And I noticed we were, on a, we were on a trip in Jackson Hole. Kids were so competitive with each other, and they were really uncooperative. And, um, and I thought about, they're learning that for me and Simon. We're competitive. We're, you know, we're aggressive in things that we do. And it, it wasn't, we weren't showing the right behaviors at home to the kids, and it was all rubbing off on them. So we did this off-site at Chicago Airport. <laughs> Everybody write down what you care about. How do you want this family to work? And this is their list. It was about being kind, taking responsibility, be honest, listen, have fun, you know, be gentle, work as a team, these sorts of things. And we all signed our name, not in blood, but we signed our name to it. And we posted it up around the house. There's still one on the refrigerator. I feel like people keep hiding them. But this is two years ago. We really, really worked to try and focus on the culture. And you have to reemphasize it and say, gosh, you know, gosh, I really liked how you shared. I really liked how you were helpful. I loved how you took personal responsibility. The other thing I've learned from my kids, there's all four of them, is a lot about managing people. I've learned more from them. You could have saved all your MBA money and just had a bunch of kids. I've, I've learned way more from them than I did from an MBA, from leading people, from reading books. I've understood their, their emotions are so raw. Like all of us hopefully learn to manage emotions or at least mask them. Um, it, what you see is what you get. And the slightest difference in treatment, you know, things just fall to pieces. So if you cut four pieces of cake, whoever gets the smallest is so aggrieved about it. I mean, they're outraged. I'm like, God, get the ruler out. They're the same, but they're not. We give bonuses twice a year. They're really generous. If there's a slight difference in bonuses for people who perceive they're equal with a colleague, no matter how generous it was, they're really unhappy. That equality is so important. The other thing, treat people the way they need and want to be treated. 
right? So you don't treat people all the same because they all need different things from you. As lead. We're preparing leadership here, right? They all need different things. And what I learned from my kids, what they need when they're five is not what they need when they're seven. And God forbid you try that on when they're 17. It's all very different. You've got to be, be razor sharp and do it. The other thing, sanction and punish consistently. If everybody's playing by the rules and they're really pulling their weight and there's some guy or a brother who's not, boy, that is so demotivating. It's really demotivating. So make sure you're consistent in application. Now, my husband's the first one to say how inconsistent I am, how soft I am. I said, I'm not inconsistent. I'm consistently soft <laughs> to everybody. And my mom will tell you this. He benefits more than anybody on this consistent soft treatment. People ask me a lot about being a woman, woman in business, woman in leadership. And this is my daughter, Savannah, dressed as a cowgirl in Virginia. Now, I didn't think I had any woman agenda at all. I never have. I think being a woman, especially in male-dominated fields, I've benefited. Um, probably I've been underestimated a, a lot. I used to go, every meeting I went to for years, people asked me for coffee. <laughs> they would ask me for drinks and stuff, especially in South America. And I'd be like, oh, no, let me arrange. I'd be happy to arrange our secretary to come in and get your drink order. There was no reason to get all shirty or offended by it. It's, you know, just roll with it. And it has allowed me tremendous maneuverability because expectations weren't there. And especially being a, an expatriate, I could kind of get away with it. I always felt it really was to my advantage. And being kind of engaging and dynamic, I just got away with a lot. I look at my daughters now, two girls, two boys, and it's not an equal playing field at all. I've changed my mind on this so much. Comments to Savannah like, give her another go, she's a girl. She's a better athlete than everybody in the family playing football. Give her another go. She's a girl. How does that make her feel? You know what? I watched this happen. She walked off the soccer pitch and went inside. So Sophie and I walked off as well. Even the dog came. She's a girl. We all walked off. <laughs> right? Why would, you know, that's how it's framed. You know, boys go to school. If they're really super lucky and probably privileged, they can go away to boarding school at 13, but girls don't. There's only a couple places that cater to the same culture with girls, and it's just different. It's not separate and equal. It's not equal. It's just different. And I see it in our business. I see it in businesses on both sides of the Atlantic. Bonding, male bonding and collegial bonding, working with clients, it's all done getting really plastered in the sun, and it's called watching rugby or watching cricket. These are, these are team-building events. Well, women don't do that. Men go to the pub after work to bond and build relationships. Well, after work, women normally go home, and if they have families, they're cooking and taking care of the kids, and we're the wives that all the men are hiding from down at the pub. It's a different situation. <laughs> and these tiny differences in culture that I never thought about, I think about how they're going to impact my daughters, and they will impact them, and it'll have a negative impact. Now, there's loads of books. Read Sheryl Sandberg, Lean, and I've already told you that she, she leans in. Uh, sit at the table and be counted if you're a young woman. I think, too, she talks a lot about how her marriage and her career has been successful because she had this wonderful husband that was a real hands-on dad. I, did, I didn't have that with some. I still don't have that with some. He works incredibly hard. He is so hardworking and focused, but he, I don't want to say never. I can't remember him grocery shopping, cooking, cleaning, anything like that. And I asked him fairly recently, we've been in our house nine years, honey, could you pass me a plate? And he said, where are they? <laughs> okay, that's a plate. That's not like a, you know, a food processor or something. Rant. Where are they? <laughs> the modeling that the girls have seen from that is not great. And we talk about this. And we could, we could fight about it. You're gonna, you know, the people that are married, there is a division of labor. You've got to find what works for you. But what he has always said fairly, hire somebody to do this stuff. I work really, really hard. You work really, really hard. What you can get rid of that's not directly involved with the kids, just hire somebody. And so we've done that. You know, I have a great team of people that help keep all the wheels on the bus. It sounds so spoiled, but I didn't have them for years. I didn't have them for years and years. And now we have some stuff in place, and it has made all the difference. It made the difference to my kids, to the quality of our lives, to our marriage. So, so try to find your own way with that. I'd also say there's a book. I sent it to Dean Beardsley. I'm not going to quiz you if you've read it. <laughs> Anne-Marie Slaughter, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who was um, 
She is the, she's director of the School of Public Policy at Princeton, and she worked for the Hillary, Hillary Clinton at the State Department five or six years ago. She wrote this book called Unfinished ben Business, and it's such a great read if you are man or woman, but you plan to have people that you need to care for, whether that's your children or elderly parents and figuring out how to make that work. And one of the points she raises, she left her, her this dream job at the State Department working for, for Clinton because one of her teenage sons went off the rails. She re, she's really honest and open about it. You think when your kids are little you have maternity leave. Paternity leave, when they need you the most is this age. This is my 17-year-old daughter. A decision a five-year-old makes, what's gonna ha what are the consequences, right? Maybe you get some stitches, worst case scenario. Maybe somebody doesn't want to play with you anymore. You make a decision at 15, 16, or 17, your life has changed irreversibly. You have got to be present. You've got to be listening with your heart. You have to have established routines of talking with your kids at night. Right? I've gotten this wrong a lot. I literally fall asleep talking to my kids. I'm so worn out all the time. But that, that um, platform is there. And that's where you pick things up and they feel they have permission to share with you and just being quiet near them, and you can help guide their path. Now, full circle. I started the, the, the presentation talking about I wanted to help people. We've made a great business in ground control, and I've worked around the edges on corporate social responsibility, investing in people, you know, driving inclusive platforms of participation in our senior team, and I, I just... I don't want to do that anymore because it has been around the thing. So I'm still actively involved in the business, but a couple years ago I stepped away from day to day and I kept thinking, what do I want to do now? What do I want to do? And I saw this management coach because I had no clarity. And two years in, I'm like, God, this, I'm just not figuring it out. And she, uh, she said, do you want to, are you a human doing or a human being? And we're all human beings, aren't you? aren't we? And so is it what you want to do or what you want to be? And we had this conversation. I'm like, God, that's what's missing. I've lost track of who I want to be, thinking so much about doing, 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 packing it all in. And what I want to be is a catalyst for positive change. And so we've set up some, some financing to invest in um, social impact businesses and women-led businesses. And if there was a woman-led business that was also social impact, phenomenal. Because I do believe it's not, um, it's not about what you do, it's what you give back to the world, and that's what makes your life. I've added one British quote here. <laughs> so I challenge you, this is your life. Don't only think about what you want to do with your incredibly exciting careers that are laying in front of you. Think about what you want to be.